I am very enthusiastic about the future of healthcare. I think technology of all types is going to help revolutionize how we diagnose, treat, and prevent diseases going forward. And I hopefully it will also reduce the burnout and stress on caregivers that we currently experience. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A brilliant and creative cardiac surgeon who went on to become a brilliant and creative CEO of the Cleveland Clinic for 14 years, Dr. Toby Cosgrove surprised many when he was invited back to his alma mater, Williams College, to give a convocation address and picked as his topic, failure. We'll discuss why on this episode of Tectonics. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Chaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, David. Yes, Lisa. I understand you first met our guest today under pretty remarkable circumstances. Yeah, that's right. So um, it was at Yale a few years ago when um, where my parents, uh, as you know, are physician scientists mm-hmm. and run the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity. They are charming. Yes, I plan to keep them. Um, my mom is also the author of what turned out to be a best-selling book, Overcoming Dyslexia, and she is just out now with a revised and updated, completely updated, second edition, which she is super excited about and at any rate has totally put her heart into. Anyway, she comes at dyslexia from the perspective of both a neuroscientist and a deeply empathetic doctor and a human being and has helped so many with dyslexia understand that it's a circumscribed defect, deficit in phonological processing, often surrounded by what she calls a sea of strength, exceptional abilities in other areas. Thus, you can be a slow reader and a brilliant person. And the event I attended at Yale highlighted some of these people. I remember in particular meeting in the green room before the event an extraordinary group of panelists, including Toby, Super Agent Ari Emanuel, economist Diane Swank, movie producer David Glazier, Splash Apollo 13, among others, and legendary attorney David Boies. It was an amazing event, and it's a particular pleasure to be joined by one of the featured speakers there, Dr. Toby Cosgrove. So welcome, Toby. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, thank you for joining us. So we are so delighted and deeply privileged to have you on the show today. Um, and there's so much to get to. We'll do our best to squeeze it into the uh, half-hour show and try to hit the uh, the highlights to um, discuss um Make sure we have enough time to discuss your emerging views on the integration of technology and healthcare, especially given your current role as an advisor at Google Cloud. So let's start with growing up. What was your household? I know you grew up in uh, New York. Uh, what was your household like as a kid? Did you do how did how was school, sports, that kind of thing? Well, I grew up in Watertown, New York, which is frequently described as being 350 miles north of the main channel of thought, and <laughs> I had great parents um, who. Uh, was both college graduates, and my father was a lawyer, uh, a Yale graduate, and they were emphasized all the things that kids uh, were doing at the time. We that we spent a lot of sports, um, winter, summer, spring, and fall, and uh, whatever was seasonal, and uh, we put tremendous emphasis on uh, academics. Uh, I remember if I would come home. <laughs> with a report card of a 98 and something, my mother would be all enthusiastic and my father would always say, room for improvement. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
And um, and then you also um, were there a particular sports that you did? Yeah, I you know I played uh, varsity basketball all the way through high school and college, and then I played uh, baseball through high school. Wow. And sa- sailed, sailed and duck hunted and ice boated and did all the things that you did in upstate New York. And so with all the, um, uh, the, um, the sailing and duck hunting, somehow you wound up at Williams. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I can imagine that. Um, what was your college experience there like? Terrible. Um, I, huh. I, uh, didn't, I found that I was coming from a high school, which was not um, a very college prep sort of a place. And so I got to Williams, and I was woefully unprepared. And then I found out that the reading of books, uh, a book a week for an English class or history or something, was overwhelming for me. And um, then I had met French, which was my true nemesis. <laughs> I, I, at the time, you had to take a um, I had a language course, and I thought, well, you know, I'll. Smart people seem to be able to speak French, and so never having heard a foreign language spoken before, I plunged into conversational French. The first day I went into class, uh, they said, oui, oui, monsieur, and I went up and down the page looking for W-E-W-E, and it went from bad to worse. (laughs) Um, uh, They put me in remedial French meeting five days a week at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I managed uh, three D minuses and a D. Um, so that I think probably could have been a clue to subsequent diagnosis of dyslexia. What were you thinking at the time, though? I mean, how did you even get through college? I mean, you you know, it sounds like it must have been pretty um, dispiriting. It was very dispiriting. I just thought that I was dumb, um, and uh, so uh, I was working really hard and not doing well in much of anything. Um, and uh, when I finally got around to applying to medical school. I remember I got into one of 13 that I applied to, and thank God I got into any. Wow. So you went to UVA, as I, as I, as I recall, and discovered that um, yes. you, you liked surgery, but it was also around the time of the, uh, the Vietnam War. Um, so I understand you, 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 you were um, very distinguished service in the Air Force. How, how, what was the sequence of the surgery uh, training and of the uh, Air Force? Well, what happened is uh, cardiac surgery was just in its infancy, and then and I was intrigued by the physiology of the heart, and I could get my head around medical uh, school a lot better than I could of the uh, liberal arts, and so I gravitated towards this cardiac, and particularly to sur- the surgery, and particularly to cardiac, and so um, I graduated from UVA, and then did a in- surgical internship, a year surgical residency. Uh, at a strong memorial in Rochester, New York. And um, it turned out that at the time of the Vietnam War, all of us got a commission when we graduated from medical school. And so after two years of uh, surgical, uh, being a surgical house officer, off I went to Da Nang. Uh, and uh, I was there for a year. And I know that your work there included you received the Bronze Star for your service. What was it? Must have been a pretty dramatic experience to go from this sort of the atmosphere of training in the U.S. to a war zone. Yeah, uh, it, it was. Um, I was uh, in charge of what was called a casualty staging flight, and it turns out that the Air Force, in charge of evacuating all the casualties after they'd been stabilized, 
Uh, and so all the Marine and, or the, I should say the Navy and the Army hospitals would send us patients after they'd been stabilized, and we would take care of them for 24 hours and put them on airplanes and ship them out. Uh, so we were two docs, uh, a dozen nurses, and a lot of corpsmen. And during that uh, 10 months that I uh, was in charge of that facility, uh, we evacuated 22,000 sick and wounded. So I'm curious, Toby, how did this experience change? You know, how did that color you as a physician when you came back? It was wonderful. Uh, it was first, first of all, it was the first time I had any sort of leadership opportunity, uh, which was, um, you know, it was just sort of learning how to lead people. Secondly, um, it taught me the horrors of war. Um, and third, you know, it introduced me to the bigger world. Mm-hmm. And finally, um, I learned a lot about how military take care of people. Essentially, if you were hit, uh, you got taken to a tent hospital, and I spent some time there. And where the bleeding would be stopped and the wounds would be splitted, and then went from there to um, a uh, hospital in Saigon or Da Nang, which had all the specialists. And then they would move you out. And as a result, I realized that not all hospitals can be all things to all people, and you have to get the people to the right hospital at the right time for the right care. Mm-hmm. And I picked that up uh, as I uh, we coordinated the Cleveland Clinics Hospital over time. The other thing that I recognize is the incredible capabilities of technicians and that's kind Corman in Vietnam and we have incorporated that now into Cleveland Clinic where we have forty two hundred doctors and twenty four hundred physicians assistants. So it's really uh, helped us helped me a lot thinking about putting together a system. That's so interesting. I mean it's funny to think of somebody, you know, having a a terrible time in college, but a, in a way, a good time in war because you, you know, you got more out of it in a way. Um, I think that's a that's a very interesting statement. I probably haven't heard from too many of the physicians we've interviewed. <laughs> um, the, uh, the so after the war, you you went back to um, uh, to surgery at a, a Mass General, a legendary, warm and encouraging climate, of course. Um, and where they were good enough to tell you that you were the least talented individual in your residency group, and encouraged you not to go into cardiothoracic surgery. And, of course, you listened, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, they told me that I uh, I was the least capable individual, and it turns out that I was the only one who went, got to the top of the pyramid and wanted to be a thoracic surgeon in my year. Rather than having me, they uh, got my uh, current brother-in-law out of his obligation uh, to go in the military right then, and then they... Um, sent me off elsewhere, and uh, so uh, they didn't have to have me as their chief resident in cardiac surgery. You obviously are incredibly talented and became a legendary cardiothoracic surgeon known in particular for your creative solutions to patients with valvular disease. What do you think that um, they missed or could have picked up on earlier that, that, that you had the qualities that they didn't have the receptors for? You know, I don't know. Um, I, I think, you know, after I've talked with your mother um, and learned more and increasingly more about dyslexia, I realized that, you know, people with dyslexia frequently get to be more creative. And I remember even going back to a kid and going down in the basement of our home and trying to invent things. 
and that sort of carried over into my surgical experience, always looking for something different. And cardiac surgery was beautifully situated for that because it was sort of a mechanical thing rather than an intellectual uh, process. Um, and there was intellect, but there was also, um, it wasn't just an idea on paper, it was a physical something. And uh, that, that suited me. There's sort of this, uh, it's not, I mean, beyond suited you, it sounds like, you know, you would be doing these complicated procedures, um, stopping people's hearts and, and then restarting them in, in the course of a routine operation, for you, a routine operation. And for you, that wasn't especially stressful. You would say that the most stressful part was after a successful operation, when they handed you the phone and said, okay, now you have to call the family and there was an aspect of that that stressed you out more than actually the procedure. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You know, if, if, if the patient's name wasn't Smith or Jones, uh, I was frequently at a loss as how to pronounce it. Um, and that was uh, very stressful for me. Um, but <clears throat> somehow I bumbled through that um, and I, with help from people. So you bumbled all your way, it sounds like, up to the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, where you, the two, what I thought was so interesting is the two areas there that you focused on, and what I really would love to hear you talk about, were really at opposite ends of the, uh, the spectrum. One is on, on careful and transparent metrics, and then the other is this deep commitment to something that's really essentially intangible, like empathy. Can you walk us through each of those? Yeah, uh, again, that was sort of a learning experience for me because um, I, I, when I first went to the Cleveland Clinic, I was amazed that they had started a registry back in 1972 of all the patients that they'd operated on, the cardiac operations on. And they would, that was a, a rich uh, field of uh, research. And the things we learned from that really change to the course of cardiac surgery in the United States and Frank around the world. Uh, and then um, when I became um, a, a CEO, uh, one of the first things that I did is I uh, called uh, Harvard uh, professor uh, Michael Porter, who's uh, and I'd known personally for a number of years, and I said, Michael, help. What's a CEO do? <laughs> uh, he said... And he said, well, come on up and I'll help you. And so I went up to Michael's uh, and he took me into his office and starting to grill at me. Uh, the funny part about it was uh, he was taking notes like crazy and not really giving me the pearls I was expecting. Um, and it turned out he was writing his book. He didn't uh, even give you the uh, five help. forces? <laughs> no, he didn't give me the five forces. He's in the healthcare at that point. So was the experience of being a CEO, was it the same or different as being a leader in the Air Force? How, what are the differences in skill sets? Well, totally, totally different, actually. Um, so let me, let me finish the first part of that question about empathy first. Um, and uh, so uh, he wrote a, a series of uh, case studies on the Cleveland Clinic and asked me if I would come up and discuss them. And the first time I went up there, um, I was answering questions after the class had discussed the case, and a girl in the second row raised her hand and says, Dr. Cosgrove, she said, uh, my father had mitral valve prolapse, and we know that you've done more of those than anybody else in the United States, but we realized that uh, you didn't have empathy, and so, Dr. Cosgrove, um, we didn't bring my father to you. And I can't remember 
and I can't remember anything I said after that. And then, uh, so what the next thing that uh, sort of happened was uh, I stopped to think about, okay, what's quality in healthcare? And quality in healthcare is really the clinical results, the physical experience, and the emotional experience. And so we started to work on the emotional experience. Um, the, the physical experience, we did things like uh, developed uh, a patient gown. We got Diane Van Furstenberg to develop a wrap gown for us uh, that was much more dignified than the current uh, most commonly used gown. Uh, then we um, worked at the emotional aspect by uh, taking all of the employees and groups uh, offline and discussing the, the, um, the patient experience. And uh, when they came out of that, everybody got a button, whether you were a doctor or whatever you were, saying that um, you're a caregiver. And that really changed the atmosphere of the organization um, incredibly. So we really were working hard at the emotional aspect as well as the uh, clinical aspect of things. So what were the leadership differences between, you know, being in, in an Air Force type of role versus being in a company type of role? <clears throat> well, I think the biggest difference was between being a doctor uh, and being a, an executive. Uh, and, you know, everything everything mm. changed during that time. I mean, where I, I had to go buy suits, um, the people that I talked to, or instead of reading the, the New England Journal, I read the Harvard Business Review. Um, instead of um, in the board operating room, I was in the boardroom. Uh, the other thing is the decisions you made as a cardiac surgeon, you knew immediately uh, the results. Um, and the decisions you made as a CEO uh, took months, if not years, to decide to really show whether you made a good decision or not. Uh, and the other thing is all of a sudden I became a public figure, which I had had not experienced before. So it was a very different, uh, but on the other hand, um, you realize that as a leader, it's not about being a technician of a doctor. It is really about the ability to lead and influence people. Um, and uh, I frankly don't think we've done a very good job in the past of selecting uh, physicians to lead um, just because you're great at a colonoscopy doesn't mean you're going to be a great leader of gastroenterology. Um, it's it's an entirely different skill. Uh, a lot of it can be taught, and I think the people that I use as an example to teach that are really United States military and uh, or any military, and what they do is give graded responsibility and send people to school for the academics uh, in between. And so that's what we've uh, attempted to do at the Cleveland Clinic by establishing a leadership academy. So you also at the Cleveland Clinic were pretty well known for cultivating innovation and, and creating companies and, and technologies out of the organization. What was the the greatest accomplishment that you had there? Well, one of the things we did um, kind of historically, it went back and um, myself and I and one other individual, um, a biomedical engineer, um, wound up developing a closed-loop system for delivering goods. And that was the first patent that the Cleveland Clinic had ever received. Uh, and as a result, um, we started out to try and encourage people to uh, and facilitate 
uh, the, the taking the intellectual uh, fervor of the organization and capitalizing on it uh, both for products and for uh, income. And so we eventually set up what's uh, what's called uh, Cleveland Clinic Innovations, uh, and they now have over a thousand patents uh, that have been issued. Um, and I think about 90 different companies that have spun out of that. And what they do is they try to help physicians take their ideas uh, to either manufacturing or start a company to manufacture something or uh, implement the idea. And I think that's part of uh, trying to advance medicine. As you teach physicians and, and encourage them to become more entrepreneurial or at least open up that possibility, what what do you th- what in your experience have they found the most surprising what is the assumption what if, what has been the most unexpected thing that they've learned because in my experience it seems like physicians just think oh well you know you, you, they're used to writing or if they're an academic physician at your last line of a paper is oh this has clinical imp- implications or or something like that but when you actually have to drive it pragmatically into you know commercialization marketing how, um, what have been the obstacles and, and, and the accomplishments in helping people to realize what's involved? Well, first of all, as you know, there's a lot of difference between an idea and an innovation. I mean, an innovation is really something that's got to be taken from an idea phase to actual implementation, so that's a, a big leap. The other thing that has always kind of amazed me is physicians, I don't think, are selected nor trained for their creativity. Um, and all of us were uh, got into medical schools, but somehow we managed to get through organic chemistry. And then we spent the next four years memorizing. And then we did exactly what we were told for as long as our residency lasted. And by the time we reached late 30s or early 40s, uh, for the first time, we could begin to do something that was creative. That is not a natural act uh, for physicians. And to try and to tr- and so to try and you try and um, stimulate that and uh, encourage it, one of the things we did is we honored the innovators in a very public way at the Cleveland uh, Clinic. Uh, there was what's called a Soans Award, which was named after Mason Soans, who did the first coronary angiogram in the world. Um, and we also awarded that along with a $50,000 prize uh, to... Uh, the innovator of the year, and that began to uh, announce to the organization that we really did value that. Was there any pushback within the organization? I know that in some organizations, particularly as there becomes more of a tech transfer uh, um, uh, effort, some folks start to worry that, oh, the research that's kind of um, more... um, likely result in capital, tends to be favored over other more basic research that's equally important but then isn't as um, valued by the organization? Yeah, I think that's always a, a tension uh, that you have to deal with. But on the other hand, uh, you you do need those practical things that are going to result in um, you know either a company or a product uh, as well as just an idea. And, and certainly um, I think that one of the things that we felt was important that innovation happens not just in products or medicine or um, algorithms. Um, it also happens in organizational uh, structure and how you actually take care of patients. And so we've awarded the Innovator Award to both of those Absolutely. things, uh, whether it's 
in the more tangible or whether it's more in the organizational structure. Um, one other question. Um, you know, I know that one of your real priorities was was really measuring and being transparent. Um, and, you know, with Michael Porter, I mean, his, his whole, he's written about, you know, really calculating almost the value of every square foot of, of, of an office or of a business. But then you have something where you're talking about empathy. I guess what I wonder about is how do you manage metrics that aren't measured, like, or, or qualities that you know are important that you really can't or much more you can value, but you can't quite measure in the same quantifiable, it, it would be artificial to measure in the same quantifiable way. How do, you sh- how do you ensure that in your effort to measure everything, you don't lose sight of the things that are harder to measure? Well, that's a great question. So um, one of the things that I observed over time is if you're going to change uh, particularly physicians' behavior, uh, they respond to two things. They respond to data, um, and their response to data is always the same. Well, the first response will be, well, the data is wrong. Um, and so you, so you spend six months uh, convincing them that, and that you do have appropriate data. And the second, and then you see six months before you start to see change, uh, and generally it takes about a year to get something done. The second thing they respond to is peer pressure. Um, nobody wants to be last in their medical school class. Um, and so what you see is, and so we took advantage of that when we began to take uh, the metrics, particularly patient experience, HCAP scores, and we published, we posted them publicly. Uh, so, and by, by in rank order by name. Um, and uh, physicians have uh, experienced that for years in medical school, and um, nobody wants to be at the bottom of the list. Uh, And so that really helped us, and I think you have to be radically transparent, both internally within the organization so that floors and and people know how they're uh, doing and also externally to the community because at the end of the day we are a community resource uh, and we uh, try to be uh, transparent with them. Um, So uh, I think it's incredibly important uh, to do that but and as we've gone along um, our metrics have gradually gotten better. Uh, we uh, and we look at both uh, the hard things that you talk about, and we increasingly try and measure uh, the uh, harder to measure human interaction capabilities. And we're doing. Can you talk about specific return on investment you've gotten from that softer side effort? Like, what? How do you think it it paid off in the end for for Cleveland Clinic? Well, I think it was a part of a, a process of a lot of things we did uh, because we're in, um, there are probably 14 or 15 hospitals in the country that have more than 1,000 beds. Uh, and and um, when we started out, uh, our patient experience was last. Um, and over a five-year period of time, we went from last to first in the patient experience. And uh, that I think pays off in people's appreciation of how you care for them. I think it uh, pays off in terms of who's going to come there. It pays off in terms of malpractice suits um, and, uh, you know, and a place that people want to work. So it's, I, 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 
not sure I can put a dollar sense on it, but it, there, there's no question we did measure the change. Well, so I know we don't have a few minutes left, but I really want to get to this last topic. I know that you stepped down as CEO in 2014, um, subsequently reportedly passed up an opportunity, from what I read in the Times, to uh, lead the VA. Um, but uh, among other roles and responsibilities today, you are an advisor to Google Cloud, and uh, you must have unique insight into both the urgent need um, to improve uh, how we deal with digital and data, but also recognize, I imagine it's better than as well as anyone on the planet, how hard it is to integrate digital and data within our existing healthcare system. Do you have any thoughts on how to untangle this Gordian knot? Yeah, I, I actually, I, I've thought a lot about this, and that's a great question. You know, part of the reason that I, I did this with Google is because we are swimming in data. Uh, in healthcare, and you know, one third of all the data in the world is about healthcare. It's doubling every 73 days, um, and you start to look at things like the human genome with three billion base pairs. Um, how, how on earth are you know, 5,300 journals putting out over 800,000 articles a year? How on earth is that going to keep up with all this? And um, so, what I see is the opportunity to use this information both uh, to understand uh, disease courses and uh, opportunities to use uh, the machine learning, particularly uh, to develop products, et cetera, um, and to store the, store the data and make sense out of the data. So now the problem is that docs really, uh, at least the most generations, current generation is probably better at this, are not uh, don't understand the tech world very well, and the tech world, frankly, doesn't understand the healthcare world very well. And so, if I can help bridge the gap between those two and help get meaningful data, um, that's what I am attempting to help them with. So many people think that you know, particularly as companies fall out of the Fortune 500 faster than they ever used to. I mean, the average tenure in the yep. is is like 20 years now or 25 years. How um, that that the uh, you know big healthcare companies of today will not be there in the next you know the next set will be that the the what we now think of as tech companies the Googles the Amazons etc the Apples do you agree with that or do you think those tech companies are going to be the next great healthcare companies of tomorrow I think they'll be contributors I mean I think that uh, well let's take Google for for example uh, they have uh, a tremendous installed uh, resource in search um, and I think that. So that probably will be their basis uh, going forward and lots of other things that they do. But I think, I, I frankly don't think we can uh, exploit the, the full potential of looking after patients and understanding diseases without the use of machine learning and AI. I, I just think that there, there are tremendous assets. And I think that they will have a major contribution to make. But I mean, there's still going to be pharmaceutical companies, and they're going to be aided by AI. There's going to be product development country companies, and they're going to be uh, aided by that. So I, I don't think that they will dominate healthcare, but they're certainly going to be major contributors. It's really interesting to imagine how this is going to go forward. I mean, whether or not the tech companies are going to be able to really get, I think the exact word is sort of empathy for, for patients, physicians, and to really understand, to get away from some of the solutionism that some dominated maybe their original approaches, but also for healthcare systems to be able to 
a, you know, whether incumbents can really, you know, they, everyone talks about digital transformation, whether they will be able to change or whether you need a new type of healthcare uh, system uh, that uh, sort of built in a, in a somehow more enlightened way from the ground up. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, people would talk about, I mean, I think relative to that is the same sort of discussion is had about can we, should we have a better um, electronic medical record and should one of the companies develop a new one? Well, right now we have an installed base which costs us billions and billions of dollars to do, and so I don't think there's going to be a new electronic medical record, although I'm sure you could make a better one for some time. I think there's going to be additions that are going to come on I think the same uh, can be said for healthcare in general. There's still always going to be a need for hospitals and operating rooms and uh, laboratories and uh, diagnostic, diagnostics, but it's it's going to be increasingly less invasive. It's going to be increasingly aided by technology, and uh, that's been the history of how we've gone along all this. I mean, take the big picture of, of healthcare. Diseases were first approached, in most cases, by surgeons. And then surgeons uh, were replaced by internists who had uh, medications uh, or less invasive approaches. And then ultimately, uh, the disease is approached by uh, public health issues. Uh, and I think uh, coronary artery disease is a great example of that. Tuberculosis is another great example of that. And over time... Uh, we're going to need um, the technical capabilities of these companies to help us make that transition to the public health. Aside from AI, is there another current technical innovation you're watching that you think is the next most important thing? Yeah, I, I'm very enthusiastic about virtual health uh, and uh, telehealth. I, I think that, I think that you know I. I had this sort of stupid experience uh, with my daughter. We're out in Nantucket. Um, she gets a rash on her face, and I take my camera out and take a picture and send it to the head of dermatology who says it's poison ivy. Um, and I realized right then that this had enormous potential for all kinds of things, um, whether it's uh, follow-up surgical care or it's diagnosis or it is um, monitoring uh, uh, at home. Um it, the the potential I think is uh, huge, and I mean think about uh, our discussion that's going on right now around coronavirus. Um, that would be an awful lot better when somebody's sick. Instead of going to the hospital, you could keep them at home and monitor them at home rather than having come in and infect a lot more people. So 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 I think that um, there may be good coming out of the uh, coronavirus epidemic. Um, that will spur some of this uh, distant medicine along because I think the potential for patients and for physicians is enormous. Thank you. Well, it was terrific to have you on the show today. We're so grateful for your time and for all that you've done. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, and we can't wait to see what you do next. Great to chat with you today. Yeah, thank you very much. Totally my pleasure. So we were joined today by uh, Dr. Toby Cosgrove, the former CEO of the uh, uh, Cleveland Clinic and a sort of a legendary uh, uh, cardiovascular surgeon. Yeah, I, you know, I should have asked, and I didn't get around to asking, um, what it was like to be at Google as an elder statesman, where the average, uh, you know, the the younger crowd is more dominant. There it must be a very interesting experience. 
helping bridge that gap. I think so. But obviously, it's not alone. I mean, I think that to yeah. their credit, they are at least in healthcare, people like Calif. You know, mm-hmm. they're sort of trying to get some people yeah. with some gray hair around. Yeah, uh, exactly. And not just uh, the um, the ramen crowd. Really impressive, amazing guy. Um, I just always find him so inspiring. And for all he's done, he's just, he just seems so approachable and uh, such a great guy. Well, it also speaks to how important it is to understand people in their context. I mean, I, I didn't know he had dyslexia, so I think that you know, somebody who's been incredibly successful. I'm glad he's out speaking about it because I think that bodes well for others who have, you know, what are perceived as limitations and turn out not to be. Absolutely. Well, um, please remember to uh, rate us on iTunes, leave a comment and help others discover the show. You can follow David's column, a sounding health tech at the Timmerman Report and the occasional Wall Street Journal book review. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health a multidisciplinary professional services firm that includes a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in scenic Mill Valley, California. Take care. Au revoir.